sports are really important vehicles for relationships. We have purpose. We have a why. We bring people together. We connect. I feel like God is our greatest supporter and our greatest coach. Welcome to Rabbi on the Sidelines. This is Rabbi Erez Sherman from Sinai Temple in Los Angeles. This week, we are joined by an author, a journalist who literally has written a library of books about sports and other amazing topics, Gary Belsky, author of On the Origins of Sports, Up Your Game, ESPN the Magazine Presents the Answer Guy, New York Times bestselling author, former editor-in-chief of ESPN Magazine, and president of Elland Road Partners. Gary, it's so great to have you. Thanks for joining. Um, my pleasure, but... Every year I take a stand on Facebook against something that is both important but insignificant. And I, about three years ago, I took a stand against the misuse of the words literally and exactly. Three books does not literally make a library. <laughs> well, uh, actually, depending on the digital library that these young kids have, uh, one book might make a library today. Oh, so, uh... Okay, fair, fair point. You're allowed to fight back. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. And the reason I reached out to you uh, earlier in the year was an article that you wrote specifically about faith and sports, and that's the Ryan Terrell story, which we'll get into in a minute. But I want to back up to this book right here, On the Origins of Sports, because so many of us were born into loving the games that we love right now, but never really thinking about where they came from originally, and if that had any impact on how we love the game, or even if those athletes today would even be good at the sports that they're playing if they had these original rules that I read of sticks and balls and everything like that. So why did you go back to the beginning and what led you to that research of where did sports come from in the first place? I'm glad you brought up that book because you referred to me as a New York Times bestselling author, which I am, but only for that book. Okay. I have written many books and not all of them get on the New York Times bestseller list. That book came from an interesting um, sort of confluence of circumstances and events with my business partner, um, as you mentioned kindly, I run a firm called Ellen Road Partners, and we are a storytelling studio. Essentially, we solve problems for different kinds of organizations or individuals, um, nonprofits, Fortune 500 companies, sports leagues, whatever the case. And we have a client that's a publisher. And the head of the company brought us in because they were trying to figure out a strategy. Most of the books they sell, they sell to women um, uh, just because of the what, where they focus on these beautiful books that they make. And they were trying to sell books to men. And so we came back and said two things. One was don't necessarily try to sell books directly to men. It might make more sense to sell books for men to women who might buy them as gifts, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And also, you should hire us to write books for you because we spent a long time writing books for both men and women who are sports fans, but um, but also men. And we, and so the head of the company asked us for some ideas. And we, I've always been interested in the people I worked with at ESPN, at ESPN the magazine and ESPN Insider. We were always interested in the rules of sports, the original rules. Like, mm -hmm. how did we get here? And it's funny because I used to say, how did uh, how did we get from people running around in the forest playing with pig bladders stuffed with grass right. to rugby or soccer or football? And, it, and it's funny because I'm a kosher keeping Jew, not Orthodox, but observant in some ways. And I'd never imagined I would write a book that would refer to pig bladder so often. <laughs> um, and it turns out, by the way, that the reason that bla animal bladders, not just from pigs, but from all animals, 
were the original balls stuffed mm. with grass or rocks was because bladders literally in a toe to, you know, in a nose to tail resource society, really, you know, Neanderthals or before that, when you're eating every aspect of an animal that you catch, the only thing you don't eat, you eat all the organs, you eat brains, you even, you know, you suck the marrow out of bones. The only organ you basically don't eat is a bladder because it's actually a very thick, almost rubbery kind of organ. And so those were the ones that were left around and eventually kids probably, but maybe young adults too, started stuffing them with grass and sort of playing with balls. So we were just interested in how did we get here to all of these different sports? So we managed to find the original rules where a sport went from being something lots of people played in different ways to a sport that we all can recognize. And we can right. talk about that in a second. But we had managed to find the original rules for 20 different sports. Right. And we wrote a book. Basically, what we pitched to them was um, we would tell the story of each sport up to those original rules. And then we would annotate those rules in a Talmudic fashion. It's actually the words we use because we took the original rules because some of them you wouldn't even understand uh -huh. what the sport was if you read them now. But the original mm -hmm. essence of the sport is contained in them. And so we did we wrote Rashi and Tosvot on them. We, we did commentary on them to explain what was going on and what changed significantly. And when you saw that, were you were you surprised? Obviously, look, uh, you know, I was born into the era of NCAA when there were three pointers. I was born into the era where, you know, baseball looks pretty much what they look today. But even when they make rules changes today, I get upset because that's not the baseball that I knew. That's not the basketball that I knew. Um, take us back to the evolution. Let's just talk baseball for a second, because I find it fascinating. Just the first couple of pages, you talk about Egyptians uh, running around with sticks and balls. Do you think there were any faith aspects that were involved in some of those original rules that you found? Oh, I, we know there were some of the, uh, well, the, the original rules of baseball are from, um, I think the 1840s. So no, they were not, there was no, there, although there was a lot of fervor, there was not necessarily faith, but certainly a lot of the games that we talk about and a lot of the rules that we explored came from rituals and rites that mm -hmm. had to do with servicing some deity or another, some god or another. I think there were, or, you know, original origins. A lot of competition, in fact, was often, um, or, or some competition was part of festivals and rites that were meant to serve the Lord, the scary thing in the sky that controlled everything. So yeah, mm -hmm. I, we didn't explore a lot of that in the book, but I do think there were some faith-based origins to some of our sports, if not some of the rules of the sports that we use now. The the biggest surprise of the book was just, you know, you you it, when you investigate every sport like we did, you just find things that you would never expect and that, you know, were delightful, shocking, whatever the case may be. And so this is a clip that you had on the talk show about specifically the origins of sports and has sports improved? For the most part, I think sports have improved with codification, with athletes improving, with better equipment and better fields and more accurate officiating things of that right. nature. And so when you talk about equipment, for instance, there's a fascinating uh, diagram in your book on football and the helmet, right? And how basically it went from no helmet then to the bar and now face mask. And now you look at things, you know, like Damar Hamlin and sort of the concussion protocol and all, the, all those types of things that are happening right now. Um, has yeah, it improved or are we in the same spot that we were just in a different, a different fashion? Well, uh, I think the answer is probably both. You are a close reader, Rabbi, so uh, uh, I, I'm impressed. Yeah, the, the helmet thing is actually a particularly relevant 
subject matter. You know, everybody's worried about concussions and everybody thinks a lot about helmets. But in fact, um, the helmets that were brought into football to protect people from head injuries are probably the reason why football has become such a dangerous sport because the an un, and right. in fact in the original rules of football that we use which is the I believe the 1906 rules in the sporting new in the for um for Spalding which was an equipment manufacturer the mm -hmm. original rules of football as we know it which is when the forward pass was introduced that's what we right. determined was the separation between rugby and football you can't do a forward pass in rugby but you can in football the original rules were in this uh, came from Spalding and college football was the big game. And there were a lot of people dying in college football, often from crushed skulls. And so they introduced the helmet as de rigueur, you know, like it was going to be permanent and they described what it would be made from. But by giving players helmets, you end up empowering them to use their head as weapons. Right. So in a funny way, the thing that was meant to protect people for a while, it did because in the beginning, people were not using them as as their heads as weapons as much as they had, they evolved in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s before they banned that rule. And so helmets, which were meant to protect broken skulls, did. But what they it increased was concussions because mm -hmm. people, it turns out that you're, you don't have to break your skull to get concussed. In fact, you don't even have to get concussed to really harm your brain. You just have to bounce it around a lot. And helmets meant to protect actually encourage people to bounce their brains around without realizing it. And do you find any other sports where there were unintended consequences of what people thought were going to be positive safety protocols or different rules that had these consequences of making people a little more unafraid because they feel more protected? Well, certainly, I mean, be careful what you wish for because it may come yes. true, right? It's something right. like that. Or I think it's, I think it's when God punishes people, he, grants their wishes. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm, by the way, the football helmet is far and away the the best example of that. But I certainly think that for a long time, as cars became quote unquote safer, as cars got better, as the engines got better, as the reinforcements around the, the, the driver's cockpit got better, we thought that it was more safe for drivers when in fact it was more safe for certain kinds of injuries, but less safe for catastrophic injuries. And in fact, what we learned again was with, with when Dale Earnhardt died was that the, a sense of invincibility when you're driving in a car is the last thing that you actually want. On the one hand, when people always ask me about race car drivers, are they athletes? I'm like, oh yeah, for a whole bunch of reasons. But mm -hmm. their sense of invincibility is very athletic. But if you you can get bounced around in a car and not suffer any outward damage and die which is essentially right. what happened to Dale Earnhardt Sr., not Jr., you know, when he died in a what looked like a very minor crash and certainly a crash in which the car was fine because the padding on the car and the bumpers and the and the uh, structure was so strong. But in the end, his body couldn't handle the whiplash. Now, by the way, when you race in a car, your, your head is essentially strapped to oh. your strapped to your seat because you don't want whiplash. That's the danger. And even the fan experience, I'm talking about baseball right now, right? When I was a kid, I would love to sit behind the dugout because you can catch a foul ball with those line drives that might hit you in the head. But now I'm going to sit up further because you have the screen going all the way down to left and right field. Um, and even first and third base coaches are wearing helmets, right? Um, like, when do you think that common sense comes into play? Of like, oh my gosh, people are being hurt 
we have to protect people in order to make this game uh, a positive thing. Yeah, I don't know if it's so much about common sense as it is about trying to maximize experiences. We are a hedonistic species and we're always trying to maximize experiences. And so there's like a balance that we do all. I mean, look, let's be frank. We, you know, as a society and as individuals, we are comfortable with certain levels of risk and everything there. Right. You know, we have 35 to 40,000 traffic accidents every year. As you, I think, I don't know if you know this, but I have a kind of a side career where I, I write and lecture about the psychology of decision-making. So I think about this stuff all the time and it applies to sports. We have a societal um, acceptance of basically 40,000 people a year are going to die in car accidents. And we could slow, we could really, really keep cars and, mm -hmm. and lower the incidence of uh, automobile death simply by putting a sharp metal spike on a steering wheel. If you put a sharp metal spike at the center of every steering wheel, people would drive much slower <laughs> because that sharp metal spike would scare them. But that would, uh, that would eliminate a lot of the pleasantness about driving a car. So we don't have that sharp metal spike. We basically hope people will follow the rules and not crash into each other. That doesn't always work. And so sports is no different. We're always trying to balance the experience of playing and the experience of spectating with the inherent dangers in projectile. I mean, remember, a lot of sports came from acts of war. Most right. of the original track and field games were about warfare skills. You practiced pole vaulting because you had to vault over stone walls as you march through Europe pillaging. You practice discus throwing and the hammer throw because they were weapons, right? So the, the sports is inherently dangerous and we're okay with that. To some extent, by the way, that's why it took a little while for women who are just as competitive as men, just as athletically talented. It took a while for societies to accept um, women's sports, partially because deep down in our, deep in our amygdala, we were uncomfortable with the idea of women warriors. But by the way, women make perfectly good warriors too, but we were societally or species-wide uncomfortable. And because sports does descend in many ways from warfare and competitive, violent competition, it took a while for us to recognize that like women have the same desires and needs to compete against each other, to watch other women and other men compete, same exact, same as men. So we're gonna talk a little bit later about are these values of war and warrior and sports uh, compatible with, let's say, our tradition of Judaism, specifically in the Ryan Terrell story? But I want to uh, bring up another clip that you talked about. Um, what are the ideals that are signified in sports? Because we talk about the minutia of the rules, but what does it mean in the overall picture? Why do I have this drive to watch a team, to follow a team? And this is what you said. That the reasons why sports matters and why we care so much about it is it's a way we signify ideals like what we think about sportsmanship and effort and teamwork and camaraderie and discipline and all this stuff. So because it's a signifier for us, because it's a way that we get to have these discussions and tell ourselves what matters, people are therefore going to have these outsized opinions and strong feelings about it. So that's why sports works. So sports works. It does. I love going to any sporting event, right? You put me in front of, it doesn't matter if there's one person or 50,000 people there. I love it. What does it signify for us as human beings? By the way, this is a very meta interview because you have me watching video of me watching video. It's um, okay. My, mine will come up next. I'm with you. <laughs> um, I mean, I have at ESPN, uh, in, in, we talked a lot. There's a lot of, there, there were and are a lot of very smart people at ESPN who are interested in lots of other things aside from sports. And we talked a lot about why do people care about laundry? 
effectively, that's what you do. You care about laundry. There's a shirt that has the St. Louis Cardinals, which I think we all can agree represents all that's good and righteous in sports. Um, <laughs> far and away the best, the most storied team in the National League, pardon me, Dodger fans, and arguably the most storied team in baseball because the National League really is the only league that counts. But why do I care so much about the Cardinals uniform? And I think it's because it signifies these things, right? I think it's because it signifies things that deep down matter. I'm also an Arizona Cardinals fan. They are arguably the worst franchise in major league professional sports, meaning they have the longest drought since they've won a championship. They they abandoned my city the year after I abandoned my city, so I couldn't really hold them to account for that. It's not a very good franchise, but I am a proud fan of them. And I think what I'm signaling to the world is I am a loyal person. I am a person who is invested. I'm a person you can count on. I don't, I'm not doing that consciously. But I think most of the reasons we root for sports, we root for teams, we root for athletes is because we are signifying to ourselves and to other people things that matter to us. Sportsmanship, effort, um, focus, discipline. When people admire players, they're admiring the way they play. They're admiring how they got there. And I think that's why sports is so powerful, because we are talking to ourselves mm -hmm. and we are talking to our communities and to the wider world. I'm sure as you shake your head that you are saying, wow, that sounds familiar. That, seems, that, that sounds a little mind. bit like how we are with religion, <laughs> right? Religion, you could argue, is a, is a, not God, but religion is a human invented construct for virtue signaling in the best way, not virtue signaling in the way that it's used in stupid online debates, but right. virtue signaling in the way that we are meant to signal to ourselves and to the people who matter to us, and even to strangers, by the way, which mm -hmm. is very important, especially when religion was invented, the way we signal to all of these people that we are to be trusted, that we are people who right. are worthwhile, that we are people to collaborate with, to marry, to mate with, to share food with. Sports and religion are very connected in terms of the impulses that drive interest in, and participation in both, I think. And actually, when I started this project, it was a Zoom project, and I love sports. I had the passion for it growing up in Syracuse, as you see Coach Beham and Carmelo behind me. Uh, um, they inspired on the court, but I also saw what they did off the court, but I also saw how it brought a community together. And during COVID, I said, wait, I've met some people that I know if we talk to them about in the heart and soul and not the box scores and trade deadlines, they're going to say some interesting things. And what started as two Zoom interviews has now been a two-year project of meeting people like you. And when I read an article and book like you, it's the behind the scenes, right? The fact that you don't write about Talmud and Rashi and Tosafot, but the fact that you explain that's why you did it, I, these connections are becoming very, very apparent, uh, not just to me, but also to uh, people that are becoming sport, part of this sports and faith community as well. And specifically in the, maybe you want to, you can, right? The, the Kyrie aspects and the Kanye aspects, the Kyrie stuff obviously hit the sports world, right? And that was one of the first times that they began asking religious leaders, well, what does this mean for religion and sports together? So I'd love maybe your take on how anti-Semitism is alive and well, but how sports cannot, how sports can be a thing that can bring us together and not be divisive like we saw over this last couple months. Yeah, I mean, anti-Semitism is alive and well because um, humans are alive and well, right? There's lots of, there, the. if you went into Kashmir in India and you talked about religion dividing people and bringing out the absolute worst in people over not just centuries, but millennia, 
they would never mention anti-Semitism. They would right. laugh that that was the oldest kind of, you know, opprobrium between peoples. They would talk about the 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 nastiness between Hindu and, and Muslims, right? To to some extent, first of all, Jews are, while I'm a uh, very concerned always about anti-Semitism, Jews sort of kind of sometimes think that they have the, that they have the corner on the worst kind of religious hatred. And there's all sorts of, humans are very creative when it comes to religious hatred, because really what humans are very good at doing is identifying other, mm -hmm. right? It's a, it, as humans evolved, it was a necessary way for our brains to process the world, which was to identify other, meaning my mom and dad and my brothers and sisters, they're me. They're part of me. I can trust them. Everybody else, I have to make evaluations as to whether or not they're with me or against me. I'm simplifying all of this. Right. But our brains evolve to make those decisions. And so anti-Semitism is alive and well because otherness is alive mm -hmm. and well. Racism, all sorts of things come from that. And does that exist in sports? Certainly. But really, in my opinion, only because humans are playing sports. I don't think it's a particular problem. And I would argue that, like, you know, I I'm a inveterate optimist. I am Irene Belsky's son. May she rest in peace. And my mom sort of was, you know, was one of the most optimistic people in the world. And I, in general, think that human, the human experience and the human experiment keeps getting better and better, mm -hmm. um, even though it's incremental. And it's a little bit like the stock market in that it kind of goes, it goes up, but it goes up like that. Right. Right. With lots of steps backward, but more steps forward. So I think anti-Semitism in general, we have moments in my lifetime where it's, um, in sports and without sports, it's more of a problem. But I think overall, it's it's getting better. But I do think you know, and the uh, the, the the bigger issue is what you know what we should what we should glean from athletes and what we should take from them and how much mm -hmm. it should matter what they say. And of course, sometimes it does matter what they say, even if we don't want it to matter what they say. Right. But right. you have Jim Beheim and Carmelo Anthony, you know, in re revered positions on your walls. Uh -huh. I can make a good case about not having either one of them on your walls. Because they're they have because they're human and they have they have flaws, right? But we but we leave it to ourselves and we leave it to others to make choices about what they take from human beings who are in exalted positions and what they leave behind as the failings of human beings. And so that's just a dialogue that needs to constantly happen. Right. We have to always be talking about it, you know, and what we should do is lean into the people who are modeling behavior as we want. I think it's extraordinary. You know, the, my business partner and I talk a lot about LeBron James, not just the extraordinary Nate, who's now in Los Angeles. So right. I'm sure you're even more familiar with him, but he's hard not to be familiar with if you follow sports at all. His, his life, forget about his career is extraordinarily stellar and admirable and worthwhile. The biggest controversy of his life, of his career was a decision to televise his choice to switch teams, the money from which was going to go to a Sudaka, right. right? Like the decision, the money from that broadcast was publicly intended to, and did go to charity. That's the worst thing that LeBron James has ever done. And so many people talk smack about him. And I'm just thinking like, oh my God, he's just lived such a life of effort and hard work and morals and um, raising children well and being a good spouse as far as we know and trying to be you know trying to be on the right side of issues etc like it's i prefer to lean into the players that and the athletes and the coaches that evidence the best in humanity rather than mm -hmm. the flaws in humanity not even the no. worst because it's like 
nothing anybody says in a press conference interview or in a locker room interview is the worst of anything. Mm-hmm. Like we live in a world in which we can easily identify really bad behavior and nothing uh, a, a, a tired, exhausted athlete says under the, the lights in a locker room should be taken that seriously ever. So one of those people that seems to be doing pretty good for the world and specifically the other, meaning wearing a kippa on a G League court right now, is Ryan Terrell. When I grew up in Syracuse and I graduated high school in 2000, it was the Tamir Goodman effect. Amir and I have become good friends uh, from uh, not coast to coast, from the U.S. to Israel. And uh, I remember showing my basketball coach, this is why I can't play on Friday night because of this kid in the Baltimore. And his effect now two decades later has perhaps led to Ryan Terrell. Ryan came to Sinai Temple a couple months ago with Ennis Cantor Freedom. We brought 100 Jewish, Christian, and Muslim children here. We ran a clinic, and then we did a talk back. And one of the questions I asked him was, was based on your article about his Valley Torah experience. And when his dad said, go to another school, or besides YU, he's told his dad, well, why did you send me to a Jewish yeshiva, Valley Torah High School? And this is what he said about why he went to YU. My decision, um, you know, it it came down to, you know, can I be a religious Jew? Am, am I, is it? Is going D1, you know, good enough for me to sacrifice my, worth me sacrificing my religion, right? And, and you know, stopping my faith because I want to play, say I played Division One basketball. And when it came down to it, um, it just wasn't. And, you know, I've seen people in the past that made that decision, you know, because of the, the clout of Division One basketball. And I wanted to be able to set the pathway um, for, you know, the Jewish kids and any kid, you know, watching that it doesn't matter where you come from, you could succeed and just stay true to who you are and stay true to what you believe and you'll, you'll make it. So Ryan Terrell, now they're selling kosher food at the Motor City Cruise game. He was just in LA. It's about time. <laughs> <laughs> There's kids with yarmulkes and day schools going to the G League games to follow him. Uh, Maybe a little comment about him, but then your article in November of 2021, is that ESPN that comes to you and says, this kid's amazing? Or is it you that recognize the other and tell ESPN, this story needs to be told not just for the Jewish community, but for the entire sports and faith world? Um, Well, you do like the backstory of things. Um, (laughs) So I was a working reporter and writer for 14 years and then a working full-time editor for 14 years. And then about 10 years ago, I started Ellen Road Partners and we do a lot of interesting storytelling, video writing, podcasts, whatever the case may be, but I don't really, I'm not a journalist anymore, but I try to keep my hand in it a little bit. So I try to do one or two stories a year. Um, uh, although I think I'm somewhat talented, I'm not a person that people are coming to, they're waiting for me to come to them. Um, and so I noticed that when, when Yeshiva University had, I mean, it was a weird time, it was during the pandemic, but they had this very long winning streak. And at some point it became the longest active winning streak in men's college bas- in men's college basketball, by the way, because one of the things I realized when I did research into it was it wasn't the longest co- current streak in college basketball, it was the men, because there was a really amazing rel- Christian school in uh, run by a fantastic coach in Michigan called Hope College um, that was a women's basketball team that had a longer streak. That's also since been broken. So when I looked into it, I was thinking that's just interesting. And mostly I was taken by the fact that it got a lot of attention Mm -hmm. in major news outlets. And the reason it got a lot of attention in major news outlets, as opposed to the Hope women's basketball team, 
was not really because it was men's basketball as much as because it was yeshiva basketball, meaning Jewish basketball, because there's this idea that I was always vaguely aware of that, um, that Jews are not quite as good at, at, you know, are not as good at sports as they are at, you know, intellectual pursuits. And it's funny because I co-wrote a book about behavioral economics. It's called Why Smart People Make Big Money Mistakes. But I wrote it with a guy named Tom Gilovich, who's the chairman of the psychology department at Cornell. And Tom wrote a book called How We Know What Isn't So. It's a fantastic book. It's a small textbook from the early 90s. You can still buy it, How We Know What Isn't So. And it's basically this idea that we think we know a lot of things that they're actually not true. And it's a, he, he write about the psychology of it. And the what I, what I knew because I was a sports editor was that Jews have actually, in the same way that Jews earn more Nobel prizes than you would expect them to, Jews have excelled in sports more than you would expect them to based on their you know, population uh, proportions. And yet people have this idea, there's jokes about it in movies, in pop culture, that Jews aren't good at sports. So I, when you write one or two stories a year, you often write about things that you want to write about. I was, for, I believe the best hummus in the world is at a taxi stand in Jerusalem. And so I waited for a, to find a food magazine that would let me write a story about hummus. And people disagree, by the way, but some people, you know, and so I, I looked for a place to write that story. So all of a sudden, you know, to be honest with you, a little bell went off in my head and said like, oh, this might be a chance where I get to write about a couple of things that I'm interested in. I'm interested in why it is that people think Jews are bad at sports. What's that about? And I'm interested in a couple other things that I thought might come up, team chemistry and a few things like that. And so that so I went to ESPN and I sort of said, here's what's going on. And here's what I want to do with the story. Mm-hmm. And the editors of the ESPN were gracious enough to sort of trust me because they were going to spend some money and devote a lot of virtual ink and editing time, more importantly, um, to what was going to be a pretty involved and deep story. I spent several months on that story um, because they they sort of bought the premise. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that's how that came about. And so as I read that article, many of the people that you interviewed, in fact, have appeared on this show. One of them is Dr. Jeffrey Gurak, professor of American Jewish history at Yeshiva University. He's amazing, wrote very academic books about exactly what you're saying, like do Jews belong in sports? And the reason why, perhaps the stereotype of not, and this is what he said about specifically the word Maccabees, and we'll talk about that, of why why you were called the Maccabees, even though based on our earlier conversation, they're sort of the anti-warrior and there's a debate about that. This is what he said about why Jews in America had to become maybe in the more warrior mentality? And the answer has a lot to do with the beginnings of the Zionist movement, Hmm. which your viewers and listeners should know about. In 1898, at the Second Zionist Congress, Dr. Max Nordau got up and said, we need to have muscular Judentums, strong Jews, to fight against the world in a variety of worlds, perhaps, on the uh, sports venue, and perhaps ultimately militarily. We have to get away from this idea of the callow Jew. So when we call ourselves the Maccabees, we're linking ourselves to the, the motto, one of the mottos of the Zionist movement. And the other thing about the Maccabee games or Maccabee clubs that existed in Austria and Germany and Hungary and Romania before World War II, is that the Jews Jews who wanted to play sports um, were denied the right to uh, participate in. So 
this warrior mentality within the Jews. Do we have to get in the ring? And boxing was a popular sport for Jews. Now it's not necessarily so. How has that shifted from the time Dr. Gurak's talking to now where it's a more open society where Jews are not just owners and managers, but they are on the court. And is there another Ryan Terrell that can happen over the next couple of years? <laughs> well, I want, yeah, I, you mean uh, a Jew excelling at basketball or an Orthodox Jew? Because we just saw the, you know, Sue Bird just retired and Sue Bird right. is one of the best basketball players in the history of the world and she's Jewish. So, um, I you know, think we, the deeper observance aspect, right? When I was growing up, it was the BYU effect. One of my earlier guests on this show is Joe Lenardi. And he says, you know, it's not in his book, uh, Bracketology. It's not fair that BYU uh, gets not to play. Like these are the rules NCAA, you deal with it or you don't play. But now you see BYU not playing on Sundays. You see Ryan Terrell either walking from the hotel or not playing on Friday, Saturday. So I guess I'm asking a outwardly religious person whose observance might contradict with their sports responsibilities. I mean, part of it, there's, there's a, you're asking a question that requires sort of a, a couple of walks down different paths. One mm -hmm. is, do I think there's more acceptance to, um, to diversity of all kinds, neurodiversity, religious diversity, all sorts of diversity? Certainly. And so do I, you know, right now, by the way, completely coincidentally, the coach of the Yeshiva University basketball team has a son who is an Orthodox yes. Jew who's playing, you know, minor league baseball. Um, is the best. Right. And so um, I think, you know, he's a pitcher and there's every reason in the world to think that if he continues to go, he'll be able to figure out how to play. So um, I think that's possible. I certainly, you know, to the extent that sports are about culture and there's a and, and team chemistry. And so there is a kind of, you know, alchemy that has to happen for somebody who is somehow separate from everybody else uh -huh. to also be able to fit in with everybody else. So that's always a challenge. But by the way, that was a challenge in the 70s when so many African-American players were converting from Christianity to Islam, and they were kind of very much making themselves different even than other black players on their teams. And sports adjusted to that as well. And so I think, you know, do I think it's likely? No, because I, I'm a big believer in probabilities. Do I think it'll probably happen here and there? Yes, certainly. The question is sort of what kind of accommodations are you, right. are you okay making? My mom was an uh, observant Jewish woman and she was the head nurse of a labor and delivery floor at the Jewish hospital in St. Louis. And we understood that sometimes she was going to work on Shabbat because it was not directly pikuach nefesh, meaning, you know, the protection of of life. It was very related to it. And so we just understood, and more importantly, she was making her own decisions. And with the spiritual advisors she talked to, that it was okay to work on the Sabbath sometimes in order to do that. Is it as okay to be a baseball player, even if you're not technically violating Shabbat, but you're earning the money? Do you have to donate the money that you make on the Shabbat? To other? There's a lot of complications in this. By the way, I didn't talk about this in the story because it wasn't the appropriate place. Yeshiva University basketballs, Yeshiva University sports are in itself in a giant, complicated situation because, as you may or may not know, Moshe Feinstein, who is the intellectual, you know, I would say foundational pillar of the Yeshiva University, the movement that underpins Yeshiva University, wrote a tshuva about 45 years ago. He wrote a, what's the English word for tshuva? Like a responsa, like uh, a... Yeah. Like an essay, an about where he yeah. Was, like, yeah, like a statement of opinion or a statement. And, and his belief was sports did not belong at Yeshiva University. Right. And basically, I didn't want to put them on the hot seat. I mean, I talked to them about it, but I didn't put it in the story because it was inside baseball, no pun intended. 
uh-huh. in the journalistic phrase. But like you could argue Yeshiva University, you know, the guy who kind of gave the intellectual heft to the Yeshiva University movement was basically saying, you know, we shouldn't play sports because they take us away from other more important things. And because spectating sports is actually a bad thing in and of itself. Right. You know, there's an argument that you could parse it where, well, we can play sports because it's physical fitness and it teaches good values. But we shouldn't let people watch sports because there's a phrase I I just forgot it. uh, Rabbi Yolkut, who I quoted in that story, Eliana Yolkut at Addis Israel in in um, Washington, gave me a quote that said there's a phrase for like what like sitting among the wicked that that because, by the way, they had spectator sports when the rabbis were crafting the Torah and they refer uh, the Mishnah, excuse me, and they in the Coliseum. Yep. And they talked about like, you can't sit, you know, sitting among those people is bad because they are, people can get nasty and sports fans in Philadelphia hadn't even been invented as a city. <laughs> it's actually and, interesting that you say that. IU is involved in it. Like sports is both beautiful, but also complicated. Yeah. And I, I think that complicated piece is interesting. You mentioned coach Steinmetz, also a good friend of the show. And I have a clip here specifically saying what he's up against when he's recruiting when a kid's in Israel for the year in yeshiva, and he says, you know what? I need to study a couple, a little more Gemara. And this is what Coach Diamond said. I love this quote. A first-team all-conference player, probably about five years ago or six years ago, who was a sophomore, who decided to leave and go study full-time. He wanted to go, he wanted to go learn full-time and, and you know, become a rabbi and, and all that. And I have a very, very simple personal rule. I, I don't recruit against the base measures. I, I never do. It. <laughs> I love so, that. Can you repeat I, that? I don't recruit against the base measures. That is amazing. Yeah, I, I I don't, the coach it. K says the same thing. I think. Yeah, John Shire, Coach Beheim. Uh, like, I don't recruit against the Beit Midrash, the house of study. I think that's an amazing quote, knowing what he's up against, but also realizing the development of these young people that basketball is important, but at the end of the day, it's also a game. Yeah, he's a, by the way, he's an impressive guy. You know, yes. um, if he weren't, uh, first of all, it, it's he's rare now among even division three sports coaches in that he actually has a full-time job. Right. He's a, right. He's a right. real estate attorney. Uh, but he's actually running an offense and running a program that's sort of two of the most, you know, as well as two of the most famed coaches in the history of the sport, Bobby Knight and Hank Iba, I think, was the guy who sort of, you know, kind of invented the the motion offense. And to be honest with you, uh, he and I have kept in touch. We 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 argue we argue actually, you know, in the in the, in the bait midrash kind of way about lots of things because he's active on social media and yeah. and I agree with him about a lot of things. Some things, you know, I'll I'll uh, I, I will take a different opinion. But he's a guy who, if he was if he was not committed to to Orthodox Judaism and to yeshiva basketball in particular, I think would be would be would have been snapped up by uh, Division One, like probably like a mid major school. Yeah, wow. I think he's a really smart thinker uh, about basketball, and I think he's a really smart shaper of young men. Um, in the way that you have to do it now, because by the way, there's non-religious players on YU. Right, you know, right. He's actually he's a uh, he's broadened the tent, or he's opened more flaps on more sides of the tent to sort of, you know, make an Abrahamic reference or a Midrashic Abrahamic reference. And so he's, he's bringing more Jews into the, into the YU tent. Um, and they're just like any other, you know, uh, teenage or post-adolescent athletes in that they have their own ideas about how to run their life. And he's very good at negotiating what is a very delicate walk mm-hmm. um, when it comes to, you know, coaching players today. Uh, exactly. He's impressed. Well, and one of his assistant coaches, I think, is 
as successful in terms of the story between the black community and the Jewish community. That's uh, Mike Sweetney, who's just oh, yeah. an amazing guy. And again, growing up a Syracuse guy, when you talk about enemies and uh, and friends, right? Talk to Ahoya was not in my vocabulary, but we have become amazing friends specifically um, with Mike's story at Yeshiva University. In fact, Sinai Temple took Mike Sweetney to APAC during the NCAA tournament when uh, right before COVID. And all these YU kids were coming up to him and saying, Mike, it's the game. Why, why are you at APAC? And uh, Mike said, oh, Coach Diamond says, you know what? There's going to be another NCAA tournament, but you got to go support the U.S.-Israel relationship. And so <laughs> Mike's opened up a community to the Jewish community and I think also has opened us up to his own community that he grew up with as well. And so when we talk about the court of solutions, um, I think what Elliot's Coach Diamond is doing is well beyond the players in the court, but really bringing communities together as well. Yeah, I think he recognizes that he's got a platform and he's trying to do the best he can with it. Um, you know, and so that's the that's, you know, because of the power of sports, that's what you can do, which is why sometimes we find the Kyrie Irvings of the world, mm -hmm. you know, uh, annoying us or or angering us, you know, but you can't quite eat your cake and have it, too. Right. If we recognize sports as a platform, then lots of people are going to use it as a platform. Um, and that's, you know, in the end, I'm uh, in the marketplace of ideas. I think the, I believe the best ideas ultimately will win, not always. And sometimes to catastrophic effect, if they don't, certainly we know that as Jews, but ultimately you have to, you know, you have to believe in the, in the liberal experiment. And I mean, liberal with a lowercase L, right? The right. idea that knowledge and uh, the sharing of experiences and culture and custom among human beings takes human, you know, then, you know, brings human beings towards a better version of themselves. And so one last question based on the ESPN, the magazine aspect of your career. And as you said in the beginning, your job is storytelling, which to be honest, that's also my job. And I've had the honor of interviewing interviewers over the last couple of years and asking them questions of how they ask questions. Um, you mentioned Talmud, you mentioned really a Judaic influence and the Judaic intellectual exercise of um, what you do both in the sports world and and not. Um, how do you choose what stories should be told, maybe what stories aren't ready to be told yet in order to just make our world a little better today? And uh, maybe just because I grew up reading ESPN, the magazine, uh, a little bit of behind the scenes into how that came about from a TV network to a magazine that I uh, just couldn't wait to get in the mail each uh, uh, as a kid. Um, so, you know, I, I, the, the first question is, uh, is complicated. is not the right word. The first question has sort of different parts to it, but at, at this point, I, I choose what I want to stories. I want to tell in our work based on, you know, who's hiring us and, and <laughs> what, what stories they want to tell. We do, however, um, turn down clients if we think either that they are not, not necessarily the kinds of people we want to be associated with or their stories um, are ones we don't want to tell. It's much more the former than the latter. Sometimes we will have people come to us who have a, quite a bit of resources and they want us to do something perfectly innocuous. But if it's going to help somebody that we don't like make money, we'll just pass on that. But otherwise, so in our in our business and you know uh we work with all sorts of companies and nonprofits and for-profit corporations publicly held privately held individuals 
we'll just, you know, we choose it based on what our capabilities are and whether or not we think they're good actors in the world. For my own personal storytelling, um, I basically pursue my interests, like things that I'm interested in exploring or things that I think are important to, to say out loud to the world. The Yeshiva University basketball one was really a, 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 an exacta for me. I really hit two things. One was I really wanted to explore team chemistry. And two was I really wanted to explore the sort of mythologies or thinking around Jews and sports. Mm -hmm. But I also think something else, which is, um, you know, I am a 61 year old, uh, you know, American white male of a, uh, uh, from a, you know, very solidly middle-class background. And I had a lot of, I did a lot on my own, but also structurally, I was able to achieve a lot because of where I came from and things I had nothing to do with, right? Good for me for being born into the St. Louis Jewish community to parents who, who didn't even pay for me to go to college, but raised me to think, of course, I'm going to college, right? So, mm -hmm. so, you know, because of that, I try now to, when I think about stories to put into the universe, a lot of what I do is trying to support people who may not have come from those backgrounds and help them put their stories into the universe. And we don't need to talk about specifics of that, but that, often what I'm trying to do is help people who help is the wrong word, but be of use to people mm -hmm. who, um, whether or not that's helping people find jobs, whether or not that's acting as, you know, as a sideline editor for people who are trying to write, whether or not that's mentoring people professionally. I, I try to think about other people's stories. I still have an ego. I still have things that I want to say to the world, but I, I'm also, I also want to help people who, or be of use to people who are uh, not in that position. Um, by the way, not least because so many people did that for me, um, right, right. especially by the way, some of the people that I worked with at ESPN, first of all, um, my business partner who hired me to work for him at ESPN uh, and then promoted me before I even got there. Like I got hired at one title and before <laughs> I came in, he, he gave me a promotion. Uh, but also many of the people at ESPN when I was there uh, got uh, names that may or may not matter to some people, but some of them are quite well known. George Bodenheimer, John Skipper, uh, Gary Honig, people like that, who I was a personal finance writer um, mm -hmm. and, a, and a minor TV personality. I used to be on Good Morning America and Oprah talking about money in the 1990s. And I had the chutzpah to think, like, oh, ESPN was starting a magazine. I'll tell you the background on that in a second. And I was thinking like, oh, I've always liked sports. I didn't really, I've only, I had only written a couple of freelance stories for Sports Illustrated, but I applied for a job and these people took a bet on me. Uh -huh. um, and uh, th that was a philosophy that a few of those people that I listed had that sports journalism was a little bit tired at the time and needed a little bit of a refreshing upgrade. And so they wanted to, you know, to bring in a new voice that, had, and I think that's what appealed to people like you. It's why you went from, you know, why yeah. we, we did, it was so successful was they wanted to bring in a new perspective. And part of that new perspective was, it's a good lesson in life, by the way, we think about it all the time now at Ellen Road Partners, was sometimes it's good to get people to, to contribute to what you're doing who don't necessarily come from the space you're in, because oftentimes it's outsiders who can help the most. You know, what I always yeah. tell people is, literally, there are people who learn a lot about factory design from, um, from operating room design. There are people who learn a lot about classroom function from orchestra function, right? Mm -hmm. There's, you know, there's associative learning. And so ESPN was thinking about these things in the late 1980s. Some of the people there were. And so, you know, they gave me a break and then, you know, things worked out for me. I, um, my partner and I kind of combined to work inside the Walt Disney Corporation and inside ESPN. We, we, we had an internal 
partnership, which I always encourage people to do. It, it, it oftentimes is a little bit looked at strangely because people hardly ever combine their efforts inside of corporations, but it, it ended up being very powerful, but mostly because people were accepting of, of us and our, and our quirkiness. ESPN, the magazine started, by the way, in a funny way, fittingly enough, because of a little bit of competitive spite, which was ESPN was motoring along quite nicely under George Bodenheimer as a very successful television network and uh, Sports Illustrated, which was a very successful media brand, mm-hmm. m- did a joint venture with CNN to become oh, a wow. television brand in the mid 90s. And and basically, I'm shortchanging the story and it's a more complex business story, but basically my reading of it, the unofficial version is, well, if you guys are going to start a TV network, we're going to start a magazine. (laughs) Um, uh, Because by the way, 1998 was um, not the time to start a a magazine, although ESPN, the magazine did extremely well and continues to have an effect even after it closed on the digital and television versions of ESPN. There are still people there. Some of the the talent that you recognize were brought in to ESPN through ESPN the magazine, the magazine industry was good, was was about to undergo a gigantic upheaval, and ESPN the magazine succeeded for twenty years, and it was a it was a big success, et cetera. But it wasn't necessarily the time to 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 start a print magazine. But if Sports Illustrated was going to get in bed with CNN, um, ESPN was going to was already in bed with Hearst, the media company, and so they decided to start a much to my good fortune, they decided to start a print magazine, um, and uh, it was I have to tell you. Uh, you know, for a while there, I've I've liked every job that I've had. I've had four jobs mm-hmm. and now my own company. I've liked every job that I had. I got very lucky with that. I think I'm just dumb when it comes to work. I can't believe people pay me to do things uh, in which I get to learn. But when I was working at ESPN, I, I always told people I, ha- I have the greatest job in North America. Like wow. it was just fantastic. Whatever I can see you smiling because I can imagine, first of all, that you really enjoy what you do, but I can also- I'm on the plane to Bristol right now. <laughs> I can already imagine you having a sliding doors moment where you're like, you might've wanted to be a journalist. And I can tell you it's as fun and as interesting as you might imagine. And mm-hmm. some of the people that you meet, especially athletes, are just extraordinary. And they are hard workers. I actually want to conclude with a verse. You said, perhaps I wanted to be a journalist. Maybe I'm delving into this category in a different way. We say that you should tell your children on this day. And that's what I love about our tradition, that we are commanded, not just on Passover, but every single day to uh, tell our stories. And you're right, we pick and choose those stories, but it's not just about our own egos and stories. It's about the stories that we can tell in order to raise others up as well. So I want to uh, thank you for uh, coming on Rabbi on the Sidelines. This is Gary Belsky, New York Times bestseller of this book on the origins of sports, author of many other books, The Answer Guy, Up Your Game. These are just some of the sports books. And most importantly, a mensch and now a friend of Sinai Temple and of Rabbi on the Sideline. Gary, it's so great to have you. Thank you for joining us. Uh, a real a real treat to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you.